Hey, stranger. I'm Jenny. I'm Annie. And welcome to Kissing Strangers. From book adaptations to reality TV, we'll be covering today's depictions of romance in all of its forms. Together, we'll try to find out whether the truth sometimes really is stranger Stranger than than fiction. fiction. Alrighty, so just to kick things off, want to welcome everyone to the pod. Wow, I hate myself for saying the pod. (laughs) But we are very excited. This is our inaugural episode. We're excited to get started and to kick things off with a show that I know I've been pretty excited to see come back for season two, and that is Bridgerton. Bridgerton been adapted based on Julia Quinn's I guess you could call them bodice rippers. Uh, it's a bodice s- rippers? <laughs> is that what they're called? That is an actual term. I'm not making it up. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. But basically, uh, this Bridgerton series um, is several books, which are all historical romances set in the era. Each book focuses on one of the Bridgerton kids. Last season for season one of Bridgerton was we kind of got introduced to this whole world. And he followed the story of Daphne Bridgerton, who is the eldest daughter in the Bridgerton family. And we watched her romance with the Duke of Hastings, played by the beautiful Frank Angel Page. In my mind, he's only the Duke. (laughs) I mean, it, it was a pretty definitive role. For season two, I was definitely not really looking forward to it. I was not into the older brother. Anthony. I thought he was so annoying the first season and I didn't think he was attractive. By the way, I cannot believe I'm so easily convinced that someone is hotter just because they shave their fake sideburns and cut their hair. It made me so upset. I was so upset with myself. I felt so shallow. I was like, oh my God, he looks good. And I'm like, I'm so stupid. Yeah, I saw several other people reacting positively to the disappearance of the mutton chops, I think yes. is what they're called. Like, they weren't even sideburned. They extended almost to his mouth. Um, and it was not a flat, flattering look. Jonathan Bailey, the actor, I think is very attractive. And they did him dirty last season. And he looked yes. so much better this season. I think everyone actually looks better this season. They definitely took the feedback about the baby bangs to heart. Because Eloise's hair looks better this season. Uh, Daphne's hair looks a lot better this season. Outside of everyone's really good looks, what were your other thoughts coming into this season? I went into the second season knowing a bit more about what to expect from the plot. Just because I had read a little bit of the book that it's based on. It's The Viscount Who Loved Me. (laughs) Great great title it gets across everything you need to know (laughs) yes and i definitely harbored some ill will towards antony because i found him incredibly annoying overbearing just yes a lot of toxic masculinity in season one and so i kind of resented him and didn't feel that favorably about him finding love purely for those reasons Going into season two, I was mostly excited to see a South Asian romantic lead, which is pretty rare, I would say. And not right. only seeing that, but I had heard that they were actually going to include um, the vitamin string quartet cover of Gabi Kishi Gabi Gong, which is a very famous oh Hollywood song. And so I was just like, oh, like they're actually trying to some degree in their own Bridgerton way. <laughs> of being attentive to representation and i also think with the casting what i really liked was that there was a lot of discourse about the colorism from season one and it does seem like maybe there was some thought on the casting side of what it would mean to cast as the romantic lead someone who was not typically occupying that role yeah but i don't know maybe i'm giving them too much credit because simone ashley is just jaw-droppingly gorgeous so like did they really veer that far from the mold i mean you know i cannot be the only one wondering if this former capital r of rake is ready to flourish 
So I guess a brief overview. Anthony has been unlucky in his Tinder swiping. He has quite a few requirements for his wife. Chief among them are that she has to be reasonably attractive, have good manners, be in his words of, I guess, like genteel breeding or something like that. Um, Ew. Yeah. I, so yeah, I don't even know where to start. I think the other really important thing that doesn't come through as much in the show, in the books, he's very worried about actually falling in love. He distinctly does not want to love whoever he married. That is one of his requirements. And so in the well, show, the way it's presented is more he doesn't care about whether or not he loves the person. He just wants to fulfill his duty. I, I think that's pretty clear, actually, in the show as well. A continued overview of his storyline for the first four episodes is you find out that his dad passed away from anaphylactic shock right in front of him, which was obviously traumatizing for him. But additionally, his mom suddenly disconnecting, I guess, mentally from her responsibilities really made him not want to marry someone he loves. So at, at the end of the fourth episode, obviously Anthony and Kate, our love interest, have little moments together where clearly they're very interested in each other. He still chooses to propose to Edwina, Kate's sister, because, he, uh, sorry, I always called her Phoebe, uh, because Daphne insinuated that he's falling in love with Kate. So I think that whole plot line makes it pretty clear that he doesn't want someone he loves as his wife. In addition to obviously being a good dancer and only wanting the amount of kids that he wants or whatever other requirements that he has and reading books. I don't know. He's demanding. So. Yeah. Speaking about speaking of the books thing, I found that kind of funny and perhaps not very historically accurate. Not that the show is very concerned about that, but it certainly does seem to carry over a lot of the moral judgments from that time. And while I think a woman being accomplished would have been important, and, you know, we see that even in Jane Austen novels, that they care about the woman being well-educated, I think Edwina enjoying reading a lot of novels, which is what it sounds like she tends to do, that would have actually been a little bit frowned upon during that time because there's this other competing idea that while you should be improving yourself, you shouldn't be filling your head with a lot of this nonsense. And because a lot of novels tended to be about romance, I think there was this idea that it was frivolous and it could put all these bad, impure, amoral thoughts in a young woman's head because, you know, you're so impressionable. <laughs> right, right, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting because it seems like Anthony's requirements, he wants someone who he finds engaging and smart versus you can see Eloise when she's waltzing around with other men that they are not looking for someone like that and are very either surprised or turned off by the fact that she reads. I, I mean, it's not entirely clear to me if the two views are different because my interpretation of Antony's exacting requirements are that he wants this woman to be able to give him intelligent children and to right. kind of oversee their education to some degree. It's not clear to me that when he says he wants someone with what wasn't an, an acceptable wit, I think he calls it, it's not clear to me that to him that's about his conversations with the women, although it would probably help for him not to be right. bored to tears. It's true. There was a scene in season one where right before Antony accepts Nigel Burbrook's proposal to Daphne, his mom gives him this very intense lecture about how he's not fulfilling his duty as the Viscount. And... I think to some degree, his sudden decision, like, I'm just going to find a woman and get married now and have my kid, like, have my heir. I think a lot of it is fueled by, I just need to do this thing right. And it doesn't really matter 
you know, my feelings about the whole situation. I'm just putting that aside. I think he sees everything. I think we're supposed to think of everything he does as something he feels like he has to do because of his responsibilities to his family. Whether or not that's actually true, I think is up for debate. Yeah, I mean, I think whether or not it's actually true, feeling that kind of pressure can make you very grumpy, A, which we see a lot of, <laughs> and just kind of like generally, <laughs> no comment, <laughs> just generally kind of resentful towards his younger sibling. And I do like that. I think Daphne might call him out at some point or remind him how difficult he was when she was in this position. And I, I did appreciate her kind of pointing out the parallels. Um, so going back to kind of the situation with his father dying and him becoming the Viscount. So we get the scene where Anthony's mom is giving birth. It's a very difficult labor. And the doctor asks Anthony, if it comes down to it, should I save your mother or should I save, I guess, your sibling? And I guess I cannot even fathom how traumatic that kind of decision would be at 18, which I think is how old he is when this happens. And I think it highlights a, a number of things. First is the amount of pressure put on him as the head of household. And then secondly, it's just so troubling the idea that his mother had less agency in her own childbirth and her life than he did the moment that his father died. He kind of eclipsed her in any kind of authority in the house. But yeah. Yeah. Wild. That being said, this backstory for Anthony, and we also saw a very similarly traumatic childhood from the Duke as well. I just want to bring up that I do notice how they really like to insinuate that, at least in these cases, all rakes are just traumatized men. <laughs> that can be healed through the power of love. Yeah, I I agree <laughs> entirely. We saw two examples. One was of the Duke's father who was very cold and not loving in the least and who did not accept his son and that traumatized the Duke. And then we have Antony's father, Lord Richardson, who was apparently the perfect husband and father and his early death then traumatized Antony. I will say, not to bring up the books again, but Kate has her own trauma that she brings into the relationship, and that gets examined to some degree as well. Interestingly, they basically completely took it out of the show. I'm not sure why that decision was made, but it certainly does seem to suggest that there is some sort of hidden backstory or mystery that you can solve as to why men are toxic. And as soon as you unlock yes. that and they face their demons, they will be like the perfect reformed rake husband. <laughs> yeah, and I hate that, by the way. I hate that message. What I kind of dislike about the background trauma explanation, not just on kind of a thematic level, but on a writing and show production level i think the flashbacks are just a very poor they're just a very poor device for explaining to your audience what's going on with this character i think it would be way more compelling to just show antony maybe going through lover after lover after lover and not really connecting with anyone and just have that be who he is than to give us this kind of like tragic backstory and have that be the one big reason, like capital R, for why he is the way he is. All right. Well, let's go into Kate then. The love interest for the season is Kate. And she is first introduced to us on horseback, where she loves horses and enjoys a ride early morning. Horse girl is a red flag. She doesn't act like a horse girl. No, so I think she has that going for her. Also, maybe being a horse girl at this time is more like being a girl with a motorcycle now. <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, does that mean she likes cars? <laughs> no, I was also thinking about the car thing. <laughs> like her riding 
astride instead of side saddle is that equivalent to the megan fox sequence where she's like my dad was a real monkey okay and antony's into it what was that He's a horse girl guy. <laughs> He's a horse girl guy. <laughs> he likes women who like cars. <laughs> Anyways, it's clear how she's portrayed that she exhibits a lot of the characteristics that Anthony Oso has. She's stubborn. She's competitive. And she feels a lot of responsibility to make sure her family is taken care of. So Kate and her family, which includes her mom, Lady Mary, and Edwina, her sister, arrive from India. And the goal Kate specifically has is she wants Edwina to be introduced to society via the season and for Edwina to hopefully find a husband. Kate prefers it to be a love match, but there's also the additional factor that if Edwina were to marry someone with a title, then they would inherit a lot of Lady Mary's parents' money. We do know that Edwina has no idea that there is some sort of condition of her marriage such that her dowry will be paid by the Sheffields, who are Lady Mary's parents, if she marries them with a title. I think she just thinks that Kate is very protective of her and cares about her best interest, which I think Kate does. But I imagine that to some degree, she might want to shield Edwina from knowing about these conditions because it might inform how much pressure Edwina feels to find the right match this season. I do think based on the interactions between Kate and Edwina, that it is clear that the one big difference between Kate and Anthony is Kate does seem like she is a romantic, whether or not she can actually admit that to herself. It's very clear that she wants Edwina to, well, it'd be nice to have someone with the title. She does want Edwina to have a genuine love match. He seeks a wife only to fulfill his duty and does not believe in the true love you deserve. And to feel like a connection with the guy that she marries, which Kate seems to think is no longer a possibility for her now that it's unclear to me why now that she's 26 now that she's a thorn back (laughs) (laughs) well kate is at 26 effectively an old maid i i think there's another layer right which is that lady mary and her family the sheffields are the ones with the title or perhaps like they come from gentility but we are made to know that when Lady Mary, who was the diamond of her season, married Kate's father, a clerk, and moved to India, that was like a huge scandal. And so I think because Lady Mary is Kate's stepmother and they're not actually related by blood, I don't know if there's some sort of additional layer where she is kind of only related to Lady Mary by marriage and not by blood. And I don't know if that informs her actual prospects on the marriage market at all. Yeah, I think it's clear that she knows the chances are very slim for her because she is an old maid. And also her getting married to anyone is not going to impact the the condition. Right. But I feel like she expresses some general hopelessness that she will not ever find love even though in the first couple episodes there is a guy that expresses interest in her mr dorset yeah well we also find out by second episode that this guy mr dorset who approaches her and tries to win her affection even though they seem very compatible, we find out that Mr. Dorset is actually a friend of Antony's from Oxford, and Antony deliberately sent him in to distract Kate. I don't necessarily think he was faking being interested in her. I just think she had distaste for the way that Antony went about it. And it is kind of like humiliating if you think about it. Like, oh, he like set me up like the poor 
spinster old maid sister so that I wouldn't be so thorny about him approaching my sister. Like, I think anyone would be really well yeah isn't that. that what happened in taming of the shrew slash 10 things i hate about you when it all comes out i actually hate taming of the shrew but yeah yeah pretty much but you do like 10 things i hate yeah. about you well right? it's impossible not to like 10 things i hate about you come <laughs> on classic let's talk a little bit about what we think about kate and anthony together so my problem in general with this season stems from the fact that I don't think we spend enough time with Anthony and Kate. I don't feel like I know that much about them. Hmm. And I don't feel like they spend that much time together. I don't know why Kate specifically is so interesting to him when all she does is neg him. That is hilarious. I've actually never really thought about a woman negging a man. To me, that is like a very gendered behavioral <laughs> dynamic if you know what i mean my interpretation is more like he has all these women it's similar to what happened with the duke where you have all these women who are just after you apparently and then there's this one person who just doesn't like you and who doesn't see you as a romantic option it's like whoa what's that possibly about you know so we talk about well I should say, you talk about specifically how you like the enemies to lovers trope. Mm -hmm. But the more I think about it, I think the less I like the enemies to lovers <laughs> trope. I just feel like in it is inherently a lot of problematic relationship dynamics that I don't like. Well, here's what I'm going to say. I don't think this is a very good execution of my favorite <laughs> trope. In fact, I okay. rarely see executions that I enjoy. Yeah, because, see, in the real world, Kate would know, actually, whether or not she likes Anthony. And if she were to express this outright dislike for him all the time, things should not be pursued. You know what I mean? This kind of romanticization of, like, enemies to lovers, as well as just the concept of, you need someone who can challenge you, and, like, all they do is bicker with each other. I don't know. I just, I just find it inherently problematic. I do agree that there is a cast of this where someone could interpret it as meaning, I hate you, mean, I'm kind of interested, actually. I <laughs> mean, is that not what they're, like, that's, is that not exact, like, but at like, face value, is that not what's happening? I agree with you. I agree with you. And I do question whether you know some people are able. can't read signs. I do question whether some, some people are able to see the nuances. But I do think, like, you would have to be blind to not see the chemistry here and the fact that neither of them really means what they're saying. But yes, I agree with you that many people are unable yeah, I, to read that kind of subtext. You know why the yeah. chemistry is so good? It's because the camera zooms in and the there's music. lighting. None of that happens, okay? <laughs> None of that happens in the real world, okay? There's no zooming in. There's no lighting. There's just somebody saying, I really don't like you. And the other person thinking, is that a invitation? <laughs> I, I should ask you. What is your opinion on Anthony and Kate? But also, do you think they spent enough time on them? Firstly, we're halfway through the show. I think yeah. we're going to get more. Also, just based on the way last season ended, I think the resolution is going to come relatively late. At least where like all the strings are tied up. And so I'm well, yeah. I'm picturing I'm like yet. a lot more argument <laughs> between the two of them. I actually kind of disagree, though, that you think that there hasn't been a lot between them. I thought the, um, was it Paul Mall, that kind of croquet-ish game they were playing? I really yeah. liked that scene. It is a poor player who plays the game and a wise one who plays their opponent. Are you in a losing mood? My mood shall remain unchanged. I thought, I think it was a nice way of kind of depicting the ways in which Kate and Antony are better suited to each other than Edwina and Antony without making it extremely overt. I do have one major criticism. Daphne sets up the game as being just more about playing the players than about playing the game. And I thought that that would have been a good way to illustrate the incompatibility between Edwina and Antony rather than it being 
this girl's good at sports. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Which I is like can. the most annoying. I, I definitely, I was like, is this my personal fuck coming in? I'm personally attacked because I suck at sports. Oh, uh, but no, I like, I, I really do think that it would have been better and make more sense just based on we've been led to think that Edwina is literally perfect. So it seems likely that she would also be very familiar with this game and have great yeah. aim, but just not have that kind of like almost rude competitive spirit that Kate does, you know? Yeah. I have my opinion on Edwina in general. My impressions here for the first four episodes is that she seems very much like a plot point and not a person. For starters, it's very clear everyone else can see that Kate and Anthony are into each other. For her to pull such convoluted acts like trying to get them to hang out more so they can hang out more because she feels like they don't get along and that's why the marriage is not ha or the engagement is not happening is utterly ridiculous for someone who is presented as so intelligent. Also, she comes across as having very little personality. I'm just not really a fan of when it's so clear like a woman is being used literally as a plot point for for things to happen. And that whole thing just bothers me. Maybe it will change in the next few episodes. I don't know. But at least right now, it's like she's not even a real character. I'm, a, I'm just waiting for Edwina to, like, freaking snap. Like, I'm sick of being perfect. I'm going to go feral. I don't think it's actually going to happen. I would agree with you. She feels kind of very generically perfect. I think married zoos are meant to be more intentionally perfect, whereas... Edwina has been presented as perfect deliberately to create a contrast with Kate and to make Kate appear maybe more dynamic and interesting and engaging and just a better fit for Antony, which does yeah. make her feel like more of a pawn. I think, I don't think she's really fleshed out in the book either, but she says in the book that she wants to be with a scholar. So maybe they were trying to like make her more intellectual. <laughs> I just thought of something that I wanted to make sure we talked about. Right. So you were talking about how they don't have enough time together. Yes. Do you remember the whole V encounter? It was just a B. So the reason I wanted to touch on it was besides the fact that it happened, he literally had his hand on like her boob. For like, <laughs> granted, Kate does put Antony's hand on her chest, maybe to prove that she's okay. I guess is what's happening after she gets stung by a bee and he's having a panic attack. In the book, what happens is Antony, thinking of how his father died from the bee sting, believes that he needs to get the venom out from the bee. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think you can see where I'm going with this. But Lady Bridgerton, Lady Danbury, and Lady Featherington come walking in, and they catch Antony literally sucking on Kate's breast because he's trying to get the venom from the beast's tail. And um, because they catch them in this compromising situation, which was actually completely innocent, they end up having to get married to preserve Kate's honor. Interesting. So they just didn't want to do that whole thing again. Or maybe they didn't want the ridiculous situation of having <laughs> Antony suck on her this moment's boop in the middle of this garden. I'm trying to think of how you would depict that, and I cannot think of a way that you would do it in a way that's not ridiculous. Well, I'm, I'm happy with the way it went for now. I am surprised you think that they actually have enough time together. It doesn't seem like they have many conversations at all, if I remember correctly. At least all of the conversations they have, at least half of them is Kate berating Anthony. Yeah. And then it just doesn't feel like they had many moments where they have conversations where they actually connect. The one scene where they have in the library, and he talks a little bit about how his dad died from a bee sting, 
I think is one of those conversations, except it was literally a conversation that was five sentences long and then she runs away. And then the other times it's just them being really close together and being like, ooh. Yes, I agree. I think they rely a little bit too much on just the physical chemistry of the actor instead of setting up the parallels between them on a deeper level. Like they completely took out this kind of background story of Kate also having lost her mother in this very traumatic incident, making her afraid of thunderstorms. Like they completely took that out. And so I think that was supposed to be the common ground on which they connected was they both had these phobias and had to kind of overcome them, <laughs> which also like, I'm kind of glad they took okay. out, to be honest. That's like a whole nother problem. I know. It's a, but okay. It's a completely separate problem. But yeah, I agree with you that I feel like they're relying on a lot of just like eye contact and music yes. and lighting to make you feel like these two characters are connected spiritually when we really only heard Kate kind of tell Antony he's not good enough for her sister. One thing before we move on is I would like to talk about the final scene, give or take, of episode four, where they're in the library together. And this is the moment where, much like in season one, the I burn for you, the new season two line is, you vex me, I hate you. And how do we feel about that? Oh my God, I am so glad you brought this up. This line... I literally had to hit pause after I heard this line. It drove me crazy because what happened, you can correct me if I got this quote wrong, but I'm pretty sure Antony said, why do you hate me? And Kate said, because you vex me. So it's basically like, he was like, why do you hate me? And she was like, because I hate you. That's why. Because you're annoying. And I don't know if it was intentional, like she didn't really have a reason, but it came across as like comical. I thought she could have said something like, because you're arrogant, you don't care about other people, you know, you you always think you're right, you are so rigid and you abide by all these rules. Like she could have come up with a billion things she could have said. A billion reasons, but she said, you vex me. That whole scene, I realize it's intended to be, oh, like hot and whatever, (laughs) but... I could truly see, I don't know if I'm making this up or maybe I'm just projecting because I feel like the lines are so bad, but it really felt like the actors are really struggling to say the lines as they should. This whole thing is just such a classic of the genre. Like making her say you do not care for me. I, I wrote this down. Say you do not care for me. Tell me you feel nothing and I will walk away. Like, it is just such a classic that I can't oh even, my like, God. it's such horrible cliche writing. But I, like, I can't even be, like, properly mad because I'm kind of, like, maybe this is just what, like, you get what you pay for kind of thing. But the vexing line, that truly rubbed me the wrong way because it was a right. non-answer. I thought that, like, I don't know how they actually got through the scene without laughing. Well, that's what I'm saying. I feel like they have good chemistry with each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think they're pretty good at just the staring at each other. But the scene specifically, the writing combined with the acting just really took me out of the whole thing. Going back to your previous point, which is you feel like they don't talk to each other enough. When you see what happens when they actually speak to each other, I think to myself, maybe it's better. That we don't. <laughs> it, it's truly strange to me because I actually think the writing for this show, for what it is, for a Netflix show, is unusually good. Like, there are some genuinely funny lines and good banter, especially from, especially from um, Eloise and some of the other characters. <clears throat> I think the Lady Whistledown writing, a lot of it is probably drawn from the books. But overall, I think there are a lot of improvements from the dialogue in the books. And so it's really confusing to me why in the kind of expressions of love sequences, the writing is always really bad. Because I felt the same in the Duke and Daphne scenes from last season. Well- This time, I'm made to wonder if it was intentional. Lastly, at the end of episode four, he proposes to Edwina. So 
let's be real. We all know what's going to happen eventually. Something happens, then they get back, then they get together at the end, blah, 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 blah. I guess I really struggle with understanding how, like, why they chose to set things up a certain way. Because it just seems to me like the whole dilemma with Edwina and this dowry by the Sheffield. It feels like both more and less has been made out of it. No, I was going to say, I completely agree. Because Kate herself doesn't make any sense. Anthony, I can understand. Because they actually go into his backstory of he doesn't want to marry for love, but he still wants a wife that can give him X, Y, Z. That's made very clear. It's Kate that I really don't understand because she wants a love match for her sister. She wants her sister to be happy, yet she conceals everything that happens with her and Anthony. And her sister, as the diamond, can easily find someone else, potentially. It doesn't have to be Anthony. And it's so clear Anthony has no affection for her sister. So I don't know why Kate is just okay with it. It seems to be against her principles. I agree. That is very confusing. The way that Kate is behaving makes me think that she is going to benefit somehow from Edwina marrying well in a more direct mercenary way. But that's not the sense I get. The sense I get is Edwina and Lady Mary get taken care of and Kate just goes back to India to be a governess or whatever. But the way that she's hiding it, it almost makes me feel like she thinks that it's going to expose her in some way. So far, Edwina has not expressed the same romantic notions as Kate. It doesn't seem like she's necessarily against... Just marrying for the title. Marrying for practical reasons. And even when Anthony... Oh my God, I totally forgot about this. You know when Anthony comes to Edwina's party or whatever and he recites Benedict's words and tosses oh, it in the fire. Oh my god. I was like, roll yeah. my eyes. I hate this. As oh, I was god. watching it, I was picturing you like screaming. Oh, <laughs> uh, the classic the classic crinkle up the paper and chuck into the fire moves. <laughs> oh, I'm just gonna go off the cuff now and then proceed to recite a clearly Memorize speech, of course. Anyways, that was a tangent. I just, I just hate. <laughs> but I think there he was saying how he's not a romantic guy or whatever. And Kate was saying to Edwina, you hear that? He's not doing this for love. And Edwina's like, I don't care. At least he's honest about it. I just think, and maybe we're going to watch the second half of the season and They'll have done everything that I'm about to say, but okay. I, think, I think a more interesting portrayal would be Kate is so invested in this love match and it turns out Edwina does not, like, could not care less and is mainly into the title and would be equally happy to marry some other dude. And perhaps she already knows about the arrangement that Kate has already been trying to keep secret all along. Who knows? I don't know. That would be interesting because it also fleshes out her as a character. All right. Before we wrap up our show, let's first talk a little bit about the other plot lines in the first four episodes. Let's start with Lady Whistledown. What are your opinions there? Dearest reader... It has been said that competition is an opportunity for us to rise before our greatest of challenges. Um, so we knew that there was going to be a re-examination of the storyline, I think, given how things left off last season. But I, I have kind of mixed feelings as to whether or not I think it was well executed. I wanted to see more of Penelope and... Overall, I what I did like about what the show did was to try to show how she actually changes when she's acting as Whistledown. So we have like a few scenes of her 
like going into the printers and I think being a lot more assertive than she typically is in real life, which I thought was kind of like interesting. However, I think like I struggle a little bit with suspending my disbelief as to how careless she was sometimes. Just overall, it did not seem like she was going to that much effort to actually conceal her identity, given the potential fallout. And then on top of that, I'm just kind of curious what she plans on doing with this money. Her family is on the brink of financial ruin, and she's just squirreling away money in the floorboards. I have no idea what that's about. I agree. I thought that, too. It was interesting to see her do her work. But for the first point, I do agree that she wasn't very she wasn't very good at hiding it. But maybe that's I don't know if that was intentional. It probably wasn't intentional, but. The whole time they were saying how Penelope is such a wallflower, blah, 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 how no one, I think maybe the assumption is no one would think that Lady Whistledown could ever be her. But yeah. I don't know. She's also, we do see that the Queen is heavily invested in finding out who Lady Whistledown is. And for what it's worth, Penelope is in that pile. Yeah, I actually think the Queen being as invested as she is in Whistledown is Very a little weird. bit strange. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. To say the least. <laughs> I yeah. I suppose she must be quite bored. And we saw some of that last season, given how, you know, invested she was in Daphne's love story, in all of the gossip about the ton. But the extent to which she feels like she needs to act in a way that is going to maybe impress Whistledown somehow it just seems like she should be above it. And it also seems strange that the queen is as involved as she is in the social affairs of the ton in the first place. Like it really oh, yeah. feels <laughs> like a historic incongruence that they've manipulated into the situation to include the queen. Yeah, that is something I thought too. I was just thinking the whole time, the queen's just supposed to show up to these random events. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't the whole point that the queen hosts events in, like, her home or something? Yeah. It made sense to me when the queen was kind of overseeing the uh, presentation of all these debutantes. I think that is actually a standard practice in that time, is if you have some sort of title that would actually happen. And when Daphne was being presented, that all made sense because she is the daughter of a Viscount. Yeah, I... The Queen's motivations, even though she really wants to find out who Lady Whistledown is, like that's a very clear motivation of hers. It's very unclear to me how she thinks what she's doing is actually going to result in her finding out something about Whistledown. Like she's so heavily invested in Edwina as a diamond just to rub it in Whistledown's face. Like that whole thing is very unclear to me, you know? I was under the impression that the queen chose Edwina because it would be easier to suss out who Whistledown was when you see a bunch of people who don't know someone talking to her all of a sudden. Right. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. Although literally, Edwina talked to Penelope for like two seconds. I mean, um, it's just crazy. I've never seen her spy or the queen's right-hand man guy who's running the search. I've never right? seen him around. <laughs> so how is he doing this investigation? For what it's worth, that, criti- that criticism and thought uh, applied pretty similarly to Penelope. I know this time they focused a little bit more on having her, on having scenes of her kind of listening in on things. My one problem here is... The Whistledown plotline is actually pretty removed from our actual main romance plotline, because if you really think about it, the romance this time is completely separate from Whistledown. Every single scene that Anthony and Kate have together, give or take, is not around Penelope. It feels like the plots are so, like, not related, not interconnected, and it just feels like there's too much plot in general. Yeah, I actually, that is a really good point that I didn't think about, is how much the Whistledown plot was actually driving a lot of the behaviors last season in a way that just isn't happening with how they've architected this season. And yeah, I think part of that comes from the deviations they've made from the book. In the book, Whistledown puts out this issue, which I think calls Antony 
a rake with a capital R. And oh, yeah, so, that's the episode title. Right, that's the episode <laughs> title. And Kate goes into the season already with a picture of who Antony is and some preconceptions. And so, like, there right. is a little bit more causal nexus between why we have Whistledown in the first place and then why we have these other characters. Whereas yeah. here, they've completely disconnected the two. And it's harder to see them weaving together. It's more of like one of those movies where you have like all A-list actors and they have like very no. shallow yes. connections with each other. It's like Valentine's love Day. Actually. You, you, yeah, yeah, love Actually. Love Actually. Well, that's the OG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the OG one. <laughs> that's exactly the kind of movie I'm thinking of where like yes. their relationships are completely just like incidental to the plots. They're not interwoven in a meaningful way. Although in that particular case, you did have a scene where I think in the very beginning when Anthony visits uh, Lady Danbury's house to court Edwina, Kate said something along the lines of, well, I read about you and Whistledown. I don't approve of you pretty much. But it doesn't really mean anything because it was just like a throwaway line when you already knew she didn't approve of him based on that whole cattle conversation earlier. Oh, since we're already talking about Penelope, let's talk about Eloise too. In the first four episodes of Eloise, you do see Eloise suffer a lot of pressure and she does tell Penelope explicitly that she does feel bad that every time people see her, they're reminded of Daphne and she does feel like a disappointment because being the diamond of the season is not something that she wants, nor is it something that she feels like she's capable of. Outside of her running around and not dancing with a bunch of suitors, the other main plot point that she has is she's trying really hard to figure out the identity of Lady Whistledown, which takes her to Lady Whistledown's publisher or pr printer, printer guy, where she meets a guy outside who gives her a feminist pamphlet and tells her to expand her her horizons. So this printer guy, Mr. Theo Sharp, can I just say, as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh my gosh, he is so cute. I ship it <laughs> so hard. Well, I just think... Oh my God. <laughs> I'll actually start with your first comment, which is about the pressure on Eloise. I actually really like the way that they kind of cast it because I think the way that Eloise was presented to us last season was very much like I just don't care about all this stuff like it's really not for me I'd rather be doing something else but I think the amount of stress she seems to feel this season suggests at least to me that she does care on some level but perhaps some of the feelings are coming from a place of like feeling inadequate or that she's never going to measure up to Daphne anyway so kind of like why try why participate in this that's not to say I don't think her feelings about feminism and about a woman's place in society are legitimate and very real. I just think that there's another layer to it where she perhaps just like doesn't feel she can measure up. And then regarding the printer boy, I just think that really he's the first person who seems to really shake her a little bit. Usually she has like a, a follow-up comment or like some sort of like witty repertee for anything and this is like the one situation where I feel like she was actually a little bit speechless. I really did like that scene where he talks to Penelope about her insecurities. I because you know we all suffer from pressures of many different forms. It was just very relatable and in some ways you got to know her a little bit more whereas I don't know how much I even know about some of these other characters. In regards to the printer boy, Eloise, and maybe even Penelope, and as well as Benedict, they're all clearly queer-coded. So when this feminist guy strolls up and she's clearly into him, it's kind of like, oh, okay, now he's going to, you know, now it's going to be a princess and the pauper thing or whatever. And I don't know. I don't know if people would find that disappointing i mean obviously in the books they're all straight couples yeah it is interesting that you bring that up for me last season benedict to me was almost an instance of queer baiting 
Um, no, I thought for sure. The way they set up his character, having him, I think he, like, went into some sort of art salon yeah. where were people having threesomes? I don't, I don't quite recall what was going on, but I just, not having read the books, I just was certain that he was actually a queer character. With Eloise, I, it was less clear to me. I, I think it seemed like she had a very strong relationship with Penelope. To me, Penelope is actually not queer-coded because I think her interest in Colin was very clear from the beginning. If anything, it's more coming from Eloise, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Benedict, well, a huge disappointment. <laughs> no, Benedict yeah. Benedict to me was... Well, because if I remember season one correctly, he was invited to the art orgy. I, I don't know if that's exactly <laughs> what happened, but he was invited to the art orgy with by a guy, I thought. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the whole thing was just very queer baby for sure but i don't know i'm just gonna say i feel like in my head it's much easier to support penelope and eloise together than penelope and colin i don't know i don't even know if we're supposed to be rooting for penelope because she does some mean things but it was sweet at least in the first four episodes when she decides to use lady whistledown to highlight a little bit more about some feminist philosophy in order to keep Eloise's interest in Lady Whistledown. I do acknowledge that she wants her friend to acknowledge her work, but I'm just saying, I, I got nothing for Penelope and Colin. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think it was nice to see that. I think we got a deeper look at the friendship between Eloise and Penelope. It kind of goes beyond the friendship of Penelope like living close together and being the same age and perhaps both being on some level not outcast but not fitting in with the Cressida Cowper crowd right. of girls and and seeing that it goes deeper than that like Penelope cares enough about what Eloise thinks of her writing to make adjustments to her content and the way she was presenting it and constantly kind of checking back in with Eloise as to <laughs> whether or not she approved. Bridgerton is for all purposes a very hetero normative white show i know it's not with white people but it it's a it's a heteronormative white show yeah i mean i think that's a very legitimate critique i think what kind of troubles me about yeah the showrunners have said that they see the show as being inspired by julia quinn's novels with an emphasis on inspired by and so there are many elements that they have changed um, I think the way the characters were written was distinctly obvious to me that they were meant to be white. And that could just be my own bias as a reader, but it seemed pretty obvious to me, at least, that they weren't describing people of color as the love interests. Except Kate. Really? I don't know, actually. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm not even sure anymore. Just well, so she, you know, like her last moment. name was Kate Sheffield in the original book. Sharma was introduced by the series. I mean, yeah, I think they like put for Kate Eloise, uh, sorry, not Kate, for Kate Edwina and her family, they put like a slight extra. They tried a little bit harder. I think in one scene, I only remember this because thanks to subtitles, it says she speaks in Hindi. So I said, oh, she knows another language. (laughs) I, I didn't use subtitles to let me know that. But I guess what I'm saying is that they've already acknowledged that they only see the show as being inspired by the novels, and they've already deviated a lot. So in the context of being as heteronormative and white as it still is, I guess my question is just why? Um, Yeah. It it seems like there's no real reason to when you've already made so many changes. It's kind of like, why not go the next step further? That was my thought, too. It's just... Yeah, I mean, most likely, based on everything we've seen, especially with the introduction of Theo, Eloise is going to end up with a guy. But it is an opportunity for her not to. All right, lastly, let's talk about the Featheringtons. I was kind of surprised a little bit to see them in episode one. 
because at the end of last season, I thought they were kind of leaving shamefully after, <laughs> you know, their family was in financial ruin. Their father, I think, had been like murdered by the loan sharks, something like that. And so I kind of assumed they would have to claw their way back to the top, which, to be fair, I think they were definitely on the social outs. But I wasn't expecting them to just like come right back and like try to try to like go to balls as if nothing had happened. The Featherington plotline in general, I it took up a lot of time. And for me, I just didn't see how any of it was correlated to anything else. Hmm. Just to bring up a point that you made earlier about how Penelope is kind of hoarding all this money, even though her family is on financial ruin. Well, what happens what happens this time is uh, a new Lord Featherington shows up from the Americas and he's the cousin of the old Lord Featherington. Unclear to me because he was rather young. So I was like, where do you get this rando young cousin from? I mean, from? you know, know. First, second cousin, third cousin, twice removed, that kind right. of thing. Right. Either way, he shows up. And then even though at the end of episode four, we find out that he actually has no money at all. I do think initially we think that he's pretty well off. So I do wonder if that's why Penelope is not helping out with her money. I guess it would be weird for her to help out with her money as well because her family would be like, where did this money come from? I don't know. I don't know. They do make it a very a, a point every like episode to have her hide money in the floorboards. So it's really unclear to me why they keep showing this. Yeah, I, I generally agree that the feathering plotline isn't related in a meaningful way. I think last season it was marginally more related because at least you had the kind of courtship between Marina and yeah. Colin. If you want to even call it that, the fraud. Right, right. <laughs> being committed against Colin. That was kind of connecting them. I feel like at this point, it's almost like we see Penelope as one of the main characters. And so we're following her story at the same time. And for what it's worth, I personally like the Featherington storyline. I find it pretty interesting. And I think it adds a little bit more of, like, not like villain flavor, but kind of that element. Because yeah. if you're just looking at the conflict between Kate and Antony, there's really no... Nothing. <laughs> there's, there's no nothing bad there. guy, per se. There's no, like, evil character. It's purely just... These two people yeah. aren't understanding themselves or each other. And I feel like maybe they just want to satisfy that impulse is to provide this other storyline. But yeah, there's almost no relationship. I do think by the end of episode four, the Featherington plotline does pick up a little. After uh, Lady Featherington essentially <laughs> entraps uh, Lord Featherington into marrying uh, one of her daughters. I don't remember her name. Sorry. Prudence? But Prudence. Yes, Prudence. And even though the whole time he was courting Cressa? Cressida Cowper. Cressida Cowper. Cowper? Cowper. Cowper. Cowper is like an item, right? It is an item. What is it? (laughs) I don't know. I thought it was kind of like a protractor, honestly. I I think that too. Oh, you're thinking of Caliber. What's her actual name again? I already forgot. Cressida? Cressida Cowper. Cressida Cowper. Yeah, Either the way. reigning queen bitch. It is funny that characters like this, I feel like as an audience member, you see them show up on screen and you're like, I already know exactly who's person Well, that's because they like, have their stank face on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she is an objectively beautiful girl, but you see her and like the way she carries herself and you're like, yep. She's a bitch. <laughs> well, she comes. It, well, she comes with her mom too. Also, with the exact same facial expression. <laughs> They're yeah. package set. Wasn't it? Oh yeah. And well, that was totally off topic. But the whole point is, he's courting her the whole time, and Lady Featherington is really annoyed by that because she hates her or the whole family. But then you find out the whole reason why he was courting her is because he literally has no money, and they have a lot of money, and he needs the money. So that whole, like, kind of, like, twist, for what it's worth, was a twist. I was surprised. Yeah, I was definitely surprised by it. I was watching with some other people, and I think that historically it's actually kind of known that Georgia is not known for its minds. So it's kind of suspect that he even brought that up in the first place. 
I do think, though, at one point, Lady Featherington, early into having just met Lord Featherington, had said something along the lines of, it would be wise to keep me apprised of whatever plans you may have so that we can make them together. And he basically deliberately ignored that and went about his own business. I think that if he had told Lady Featherington right off the bat, he and Cressida could have been married in a week. Like, she would have made that happen. Yeah. Did she mention afterwards, after he told her, like, she was saying, well, why didn't you just tell me? Yeah, I think think so. She was like, you should have just told me. Like, (laughs) Well, Lord Lord Featherington is just a weird guy in general. And I guess the whole point of that was, as a guy, he probably doesn't trust her because she's a woman. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's what they're trying to make with that point. Yeah, well, he likes taxidermy. That's a pretty big yeah. red flag. <laughs> it really is. Taxidermy is so weird. <laughs> like, we, we, talk about, we talk about red flags all the time, but I can't think of an actual, <laughs> more of an actual red flag than taxidermy. <laughs> Straight up. I agree. However, people, like, get their pets stuffed after death. It's not just people getting their hunting trophies mounted on the wall. I get that's something that happens in theory. I just never want to meet anyone who does that. All right. Now that we have plumbed the depths of our first half of Bridgerton, it is time to announce some awards. So our first category is No Stranger 2. We're going to talk about some Bridgerton staple lines. The nominees are as follows. Being a thornback. A Thornback, we recently learned, is a woman who remains unmarried after the age of 26. So, why are we putting it in category? Because we're we're Thornbacks. We're no strangers to being Thornbacks. Oh, 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 okay. Okay. I didn't didn't make that connection at all. Okay, okay. What? (laughs) Okay, okay. Got it, got it. Okay. Our next nominee is Classic Bridgerton Lines. Season one, we had the iconic I Burn For You. And (laughs) season two has now gifted us with a new gem. You vex me. I hate you. (laughs) Double boo. (laughs) Up next, we have Being Told Romantic Love is the Sole Meaning of a Person's Life. Uh, yep, no stranger to that one. And last, but perhaps actually least, we have Vitamin String Quartet instrumental covers of various pop songs. I actually don't think we've seen the worst of the covers yet. Um, I think the most egregious maneuvers are yet to come. I'm well aware. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And so what do we think looking at these nominees? Oh, this one's really hard. They're all so good. Do you have an opinion? I got to give it to classic Bridgerton lines. Yeah. Um, Just the clear effort that went into coming up with an iconic line and yet falling so incredibly far short both times and yet it being met with such a, you know, overwhelmingly positive reception, I find kind of hilarious. I told you I think it's intentional. That they've chosen bad lines? Yes. Really? Yes. I Well, I should say, I think maybe the first one was an accident, and then the second one, they decided to really lean in. I'm not sure if I'm right. I feel like I'm right, though. So, But to, I like yeah. this nominee. To be fair, it's really difficult to come up with these iconic lines. Well, the only one I can think of that doesn't actively irritate me that I actually like is 2005 Pride and Prejudice delivery of their argument in the rain and then them coming and walking towards each other in the morning fog and Darcy once again proclaiming his love. Like, those lines to me are not cringy. But these, yikes. These are definitely cringy. I'm down to give classic Bridgerton lines the award as well. It's the most Bridgertony, I guess, of all of them. Excluding vitamin string quartet. I'm sure there's only going to be more. 
So, um, next up, our second category: Stranger Danger. The nominees here are negging. <laughs> so, um, I feel like that really needs no explanation for why we should be a little bit alarmed by that behavior. Although I do think it's interesting, we're kind of seeing it from both sides this time. I don't know that that is necessarily common. Next up, we have healing a man's trauma with love. <laughs> Which I'm not laughing at the trauma. I don't think you are either. But uh, we do find it interesting that these male leads somehow need some traumatic backstory to make them worthwhile romantic leads to explain why they are the way they are. And uh, it's because everyone loves a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, we have a disposable woman solely to press the plot. And unfortunately, I think uh, Edwina is occupying that role this season. And lastly, we have the straight washing of a queer character. I think probably more than one in this case. Well, my vote here is healing a man's trauma with love. I, Two? I, Agree. One hundred percent agree. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying two seasons and two or I should say many of flashbacks about man trauma. OK, it's not that I don't think men have problems. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. When you put it like that, <laughs> it, it's mostly that I think it's interesting that we think they need to be investigated so thoroughly on screen to justify whatever faults they have and i don't think the female leads get that opportunity to explain why they behave the way they do and certainly i think this show is very much presented for the female gaze and perhaps that's why they chose to operate this way but interesting nonetheless yeah i don't like it <laughs> and it's my winner. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so with that, I think it is just about time to wrap up our very first episode. This has been a lot of fun. Hopefully fun enough that we will get to do it again. Maybe even a third <laughs> yeah. time. God willing. We've been your hosts, Annie and Jenny, and this has been the first episode of Kissing Strangers. Tune in next time as we tackle the last four episodes of Bridgerton. And until then... Don't, Don't be, be a stranger. stranger.